All right, well, as Andy said, we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 6 as we continue this journey through uh, looking at spiritual warfare and specifically right now looking at um, the, the armor of God, the individual pieces of the armor. And this morning in Ephesians 6, we come to the final defensive piece of the armor. We have one more to look at after this, but this is the final defensive piece of armor. And so to kind of summarize uh, where we've been in, in chapter six so far, I'm, I'm going to read a little bit more than I did last time and just I'm going to take bits and pieces from verses here and there to kind of catch us up and, and see where we're at. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Ephesians six. We'll pick up in 10 and skip around a little bit for this short passage. If you don't have your Bible, it's up on the screens there for you. Ephesians chapter six, starting in verse 10. Finally, Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore and take the helmet of salvation. Let's pray as we approach the word. Father, your word equips us, it sanctifies us, and it helps us. Pray that as we approach it this morning, we would see it with clarity in a way that affects our hearts and pulls us into deeper and greater trust and fellowship with you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So I'm sure uh, we all have our favorite moment or favorite scene from the Chronicles of Narnia. At some point or another, you can probably picture it now and Many of you, you've probably read it several times, and you might have a favorite character. And, you know, they're, they're the big ones. Obviously, there's Aslan. You know, there's Eustace. There's Mr. Beaver or Reap a Cheap. There's some, some characters that we can point to and go, oh, this is my favorite. But I think there's one in there that is highly underrated. There's a character that is just an absolute favorite of mine because I identify with his cynicism so much. And that's the character of Puddleglum. Let me give you a few of my favorite lines from him. All right, here's one. Good morning, guests, he says to the children. Though when I say good, I don't mean it won't probably turn to rain or it might snow or fog or thunder. You didn't get any sleep, I dare say. And after almost, uh, here's another one. After almost of all of Aslan's uh, signs have come to pass and they've found the prince and Eustace assumes, well, this means all is going to begin to go right at this point now. And Puddleglum chimes in and says, I don't know about that. You see, Aslan didn't tell Pole what would happen. He only told her what to do. That fellow will be the death of us once he's up, I dare say. I shouldn't wonder. I'm sure of it. And lastly, they're trapped in a cave with no end in sight. No, no way to escape, it seems. And he says, you must always remember there's one good thing about being trapped down here. It'll save funeral expenses. Constantly pessimistic and always on the verge of losing hope. Puddle Glum seems like someone who's seen the absolute worst in life and expects nothing less for the future. But if we think about it, we all have a little bit of that attitude in us from time to time, don't we? Even the most optimistic of us can be beaten down by the constant barrage of life and its difficulties. And that's before we even begin to think about the spiritual battle raging around us that we're in, that Satan uses, uh, that he uses those difficulties to his advantage. See, we're called to this battle, but it's a war of attrition from Satan's side. He's seeking to wear us down, to make us weary, because he knows how easily we can lose hope. 
And in a battle that will literally last a lifetime, that can be a little overwhelming. As it continues to get harder, we can begin to feel that overwhelming, and it's hard to remain hopeful. With an enemy who preys solely on our weaknesses day in and day out, how could we remain hopeful? And that's the question that we need answered this morning. How can we remain hopeful in this kind of war, in this kind of difficulty? And the answer that the text provides is that only the salvation of Jesus can protect our hope. It's only his salvation, and we desperately need that protection. We need protecting. Throughout this series, I, I, I said it earlier, and I, I've heard a couple of the other uh, uh, preachers say this, that you know, some of you, as we look at this spiritual warfare, you might not be feeling the weight of that battle right now. But I know that there are many of you here this morning that are walking in this door and going, no, I feel it. It's there. I, I can feel the full weight of Satan's attacks bearing down on me. And wherever you're coming from on that spectrum, this point will likely, know, uh, likely not come as any surprise to you because you have to realize that we are in danger. Wherever you're at, we realize that we're in danger. And first, we're in danger of weariness. Now, I'm going to spoil a little bit of, of the sermon later on, but I, I hope it's nothing you didn't see coming anyway. We're going to look at how Isaiah, uh, Isaiah points to Christ and shows that he wore the helmet before we did. But before we get to that point, let's look at the context of that passage a little bit more. And it's in Isaiah 59, and uh, here we're, lo- we're looking at Isaiah 59, 14, and 15. And here's how the Lord sees the world that he's sending his divine warrior into. He says, Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away, for truth has stumbled in the public squares. Uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it and it displeased him that there was no justice. God looks down and he sees a world of corruption with no care for justice. A world that loves evil, caught in a crooked and twisted generation that calls good evil and evil good. Truth has become despised. It's it's a stumbling block. Righteousness is no longer recognized, and even if we begin to recognize this and by the Spirit's illumination and try to turn away from it and live differently, all we do is expose ourselves to the, to the attacks of Satan more. The more we live for God, the bigger target we're putting on our back. That's the context of our battle. We're behind enemy lines, and as soon as it's discovered that we're not one of them, it's a full-on attack to batter us. He wants to beat us down little by little. The evil, the evil one wants that to add up over time, to wear us out. And as the battle goes on, as he continues that, we're also in danger of losing hope. As we become weary, we get in danger of losing hope. And this really plays out in two ways in our lives. And first, we might lose hope by finding hope in something other than Christ, and, and as we walk through this fight, we're not always successful, right? I'm sure you felt that day in and, and day out. We don't win every skirmish that we're fighting. And those little setbacks, the, the enemy uses to try and reinforce his lies to us. You know, he whispers in there, wow, you know, you, you prayed so much about that job. I mean, you prayed day and night, and it just didn't seem to work out for you, did it? But it really worked out for that other guy who actually got the raise, and he doesn't really strike me as somebody who prays a whole lot. 
Satan will wear us down with those kind of attacks, little by little, whispering over and over, and he'll continue to press a little bit more each time until eventually we, be, we begin to misplace our hope, until we start to think, you know, I, I know I need to pray, and I'll get there, but what I really need is to get this project done. That's, that's what's really going to help me out is I, I've just got to, you know, put the nose to the grindstone and get it, and I'll find time for prayer later on. We find ourselves in a spot where we eventually, we wouldn't say this explicitly, but we live a life that says, you know, this Jesus stuff just isn't doing the trick. Obviously, I still believe in him, but it's just not working out. He's not here in the day to day. He's not helping me now. That's where I need to step up. You know, God helps them who helps themselves. That, that's where we land. We trick ourselves into thinking that Jesus isn't all in, in every part of our lives, and so we find ourselves hoping in something that has no real and lasting power. But maybe it's even more clear-cut than that. Maybe you haven't misplaced your hope. Maybe after time and time of it seeming like God just hasn't shown up, that he's not coming through, you've lost hope altogether. I, I can remember uh, growing up as a Mr. Rogers kid. I, I loved him so much, you know, sweet just fantastic guy. But as we got into middle school, all of a sudden all these rumors start coming out about Mr. Rogers. And we start to say, oh, you know, I, I heard he was actually a Marine sniper with the highest kill count in his platoon. He's got tattoos all under his sweater and he's actually terrible to all the people on set. And what was happening is none of that stuff was true, but we saw this guy that looked so good, that looked so nice, and we said, it's just too good to be true. There's no way this is real. There's got to be something behind it, something to, to break that down. See, we get to a point where we look at the world around us and we feel the weight of, of inflation and, and rising rent and racial tension and corrupt politicians, morally failed church leaders, disease, famine, on and on and on, and we just in weariness think, my goodness, is this really it? Is this what it looks like for Jesus to be with us in the battle? Is this what it looks like for him to have come? Surely not. And we begin to buy into the lie that the world is going to pot. We may even still believe, uh, believe in uh, a rejoice in the coming of Christ. We may hold that, but we, we fall into this mindset of, well, that's for then, and it doesn't touch the now. We'll get there, but it has nothing to do with my day today. Satan's won this round and we're just waiting for it all to end so we can finally be with Jesus. We fall into this trap. We get wearied and we're in danger of losing hope. We need our hope to be protected because Satan is craftily chipping away at it. He's attempting to strip it from us. And so what do we do? How do we protect our hope then? And this is where we get into the passage. We take the helmet of salvation and see, what's interesting is there's actually a subtle difference in the verses here. So we've seen the word take a few times, you know, take up the shield of faith, take up the armor of God, take the helmet of salvation. In this case, take is different from all those other instances. In the first few, it has more of an active sense. You're, act, you're doing an action to take it up. But here, there's actually a sense in which it would be uh, better to read it almost as receive the helmet of salvation, Paul is drawing directly from Isaiah 59 in this case. And with that in mind, as we think about receiving that salvation and looking at where Paul is coming from, we learn two things. And first is that Christ has worn the helmet and won the battle. Christ has worn the helmet and won the battle. 
If we back up to Isaiah 59 from earlier, God sees this lack of justice and the infiltration of sin in the world, and he sees there's no one to intercede for man in this battle. And so he sends his divine warrior, and this is, how, this is where we pick up in verse 16 from Isaiah 59. He says, Then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld him. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgressions, declares the Lord. See, Christ sees the trouble of his people, the corruption of the world. He sees an environment of hopelessness and he answers. He responds. He puts on the helmet himself. He equips himself to enter into the battle, this helmet of salvation, of deliverance and victory to destroy the evil of this world, to redeem those who turn to him from their transgressions. Christ has gone into battle on your behalf. He wears the helmet to accomplish the salvation we need in order to make it through this. And he wears the helmet into battle against the evil one to destroy his power of sin and death over us. See, Satan wants to batter us with a barrage of the power that he has left in this world in an attempt to destroy our hope. And in the face of that kind of power, he sure seems scary. Obviously, he does. But Jesus comes on the scene and so completely destroys Satan's power and utterly humiliates his schemes that the very rising of the sun each day causes Satan to cower in fear as a reminder of the power Jesus has over him. He has so defeated him that at the very rising of the sun, Satan shies away. And Hebrews 2 tells us what, exactly what Jesus did to bring Satan to such fear. It says, he who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil." And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus took up the armor and went to the one who held the power of death as his greatest weapon. And Jesus entered into the fight by subjecting himself to the evil one's power only to show him that not only could Jesus take on the power of the devil, but he could take on the very wrath of God and still break free from the chains of Satan. He makes the devil cower because he has felt the sting of his true powerlessness in light of the glory and righteousness of salvation in Christ. And you need to hear this this morning if you're going to find hope. Jesus does not stop there. That's not the end. He wore a helmet to earn a crown of glory, but he took a crown of thorns to give us his helmet. Christ has adorned his people. 
He not only fought, he has adorned his people. He wore a helmet to enter into battle so that he could earn that crown of glory, but instead he took on the punishment of sins. He took the crown of thorns on the cross. He experienced the defeat of death in the evil one's battle all so that we could receive his crown. He subjected himself to the evil one's only power only to overcome it and earn a victory that he could share its rewards with us. And that's why Paul pulls from Isaiah 59 in another place, and he doesn't just call it the helmet of salvation. If we look at 1 Thessalonians 5.8, he says, But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. The hope of salvation. You could read that as the sure hope, the certain hope of salvation. You know, when I think about this, I, I, I love English Premier League soccer, and there's normally one point in the season where there's some power team that's just running away, they're at the top of the table, they're doing better than any other team, and with the way the league works, at a certain point, this team has had so many wins that mathematically, they've won the season, although there might be three, five, even ten games left in the season, but they've won it. They could lose every game after that, and their closest rival could win every single game, but they're still going home with the trophy. The victory is certain. They could go in and lose every single game. No matter what the outcome is, win, loss, or draw, they're going home with the victory. This is where we find hope. The victory is won. No matter what happens day to day, we have a victory. It's certain. It's ours. He can't take that from us. He may hurt us, he may wound the mind, but he cannot take the soul. Victory is certain and it is ours. That belongs to King Jesus, the victor who has shared the reward with his people. And now the only option for us, the only end possible for us is his victory over death, sin, and Satan. That's the only thing we can look forward to. Thank you. Our hope needs protecting, so Christ came to secure that fate for us with such a certainty that nothing can strip us of our hope. And so how does that great view of the future affect us in the battle now? That's a great view, but how does it affect us now? Well, we stand. That's why we went back a little bit in Ephesians. He, he tells us throughout this, take up the armor and stand. And having done all to stand firm, And I think what this points to with the helmet is it's saying after going through the battle, after experiencing the daily slog of this battle with Satan, being attacked and assaulted, weathered and wearied, continue to stand in the hope of your salvation. We stand even after the difficulty of a lifelong battle with a certain hope to overcome our weariness through Christ's strength and endurance. With his hope, we can go in confidence. The devil wants to strip away our hope and to weather it out, but Christ has secured it by winning the battle already so we can press into this battle with confidence. That means we don't uh, uh, cower or, or shy away from it at fear of what the devil may bring against us. And now this is where many of us shrink back. We're scared to confront someone who sinned against us because we know the conversation will be difficult and uncomfortable. Or we choose to bottle up our sin struggles rather than confess them because that would require openness and vulnerability with other people. 
we're scared to live in this way because we know that it opens us up to Satan's attacks and to, the, to a grander battle that will wear us down even more. We shy away from pressing into that because we know, as Isaiah said, we're making ourselves pray. But as we begin to live out the gospel, while that's a reality, the message of the scripture is that we must go in head held high. We have to go in in confidence to do more than stand, to move, actually move forward against Satan. And we can do that with confidence because we have a sure victory ahead of us. Is it difficult? Absolutely. We go in confidently, not without any feeling. And Paul sums up that experience in 2 Corinthians. Listen to this. He, he, right before this, he says, we have the power of God. You've got the power of God. But then he says, we are afflicted in every way but not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven to despair. We're persecuted, but not forsaken. We're struck down, but not destroyed. Always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may always be manifested in our bodies. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction, the battle around us, the difficulty that we experience is just preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look to the things, uh, or sorry, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. They're passing. They don't last. The things that are unseen are eternal. The victory is eternal. We have a certain and eternal hope. So as scary and as overwhelming as it may be to intentionally put ourselves out as prey to Satan's schemes, to live that life and to go in confidently moving towards Satan and his battle, we can move in with confidence knowing that Christ just isn't promised in the distant future. It's not a hope just for then. He is here now working his victory in us, renewing us day by day so that we may experience it more fully. Satan comes stronger, but Jesus comes better. He will renew us. He will help us. But you might think, what about when we don't feel this victory? That's a great message. You know, that that sounds awesome. I love the idea of it. But there are days when I don't feel that. I don't want you to leave here thinking that the answer that I'm trying to give you is just, well, think better. Just think about it more, and that'll help you, because oftentimes, that's not what helps. So what do we do when the weariness outweighs our confidence? We go in community. And I didn't even plan this with Joel this morning, but that worked out really well, didn't it? We go in community, right? This is a really practical application that I want us to focus in on. When we don't experience that confidence of salvation that's being promised here, we remind ourselves of its assurance and blessing by going where it is most easily seen, experienced, and expressed, which is the community of believers around you. Our feeling of hopefulness is fleeting, That feeling, the the emotion of feeling hopeful is fleeting, but our hope is certain. And there's no better way to be reminded of that in those moments of fleetingness than to join together with others who are in the same fight. 
I actually thought of this when I I read an interview just recently uh, of a soldier who is recounting their time in Vietnam, and they actually came under ambush by an enemy group, and he was talking about the chaos of it and, and, you know, kind of walking through what they were thinking, and they asked him, you know, what was your thought in that moment? Like, surely, you know, you, you think of these military guys, and they're all tough, and they're just out there and nothing scares them, you know, they're, they're eating nails for breakfast, that kind of idea. But he's, what he tells the interviewer is, actually, in combat, everybody is afraid. Everybody's scared senseless. But there's a camaraderie among people in your outfit. There's a closeness because you want to save their lives as much as you want to save your own. We all feel the fear and struggle and weariness of this fight. All it takes is a decent conversation over a meal to figure out we've all been there. But these people around us that that are sitting to your left and right that sung over you this morning like Joel talked about, these people want to see you live and glorify God just as much as they want that for themselves. The church, this is your home base. This is the kingdom outpost where you rest up and you resupply. This is where you gather strength with others to go back out into the battle. And I'm not talking about just the physical institutional church. I'm not saying you have to come to this building for that. Come to this building for that. That's what it's here for. But I'm talking about the church as an organism. Individuals. Each of you out there, as you go out and have meals with one another, as you meet in community groups, as you hang out with friends and watch your children play together, it's those moments where you are gathering together as a church, as a group of soldiers for the Lord to say, gosh, this fight is difficult. Man, I need some help. But thank you for being here. Our strength comes from Christ, but its constant reminders come from the presence and encouragement of those fighting alongside us. Listen to the rest of Paul's encouragement in 1 Thessalonians for that. Just after he tells us the helmet is the hope of salvation, he says, For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, based on these promises, based on the hope that you have and the sure victory that we have, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. If you're feeling crushed and afflicted and defeated and weary, the call here is not just remember the truth of Jesus, that he gives you strength and hope and certainty. That's well and good, and we should be reminding ourselves of that continually. But the call is also go to your brothers and sisters. Go to the church to seek encouragement. Go to those who can carry your burdens, who can help you in that, who can lift your spirits and encourage your soul. And what I want us to hear here is is that we need to become comfortable in community. We need to be willing to come and open up about the difficulty and the experiences and the specific ways in which Satan is wearing us down. If you're anything like me, there, it feels weird, especially in this sort of modern age where like churchy stuff is already weird enough. It feels weird to go to someone and say, I feel like the evil one is attacking me here. It feels like an awkward thing to say out loud, but we have to get comfortable with that. If we're going to find strength in community, we need to be able to go to one another and say, I think Satan is attacking me here and I need help. 
And for those of us who hear that from others, we have to become comfortable and take seriously the call to build one another up in that moment. I mean, what better way to showcase the hope of salvation to the world than to visibly demonstrate a community in which someone can feel the freedom to come in honesty and say something like, I feel so battered by this storm right now, by this fight right now, that I'm questioning my faith. To come with that kind of openness and the response not be judgment and the response not be, well, just think better, but the response to be, of course you are. Look at what you're going through. Who wouldn't? But how can I carry that burden for you? What does that look like? Can we have some more meals together? Do you need some time alone where I can watch your kids and let you go on a walk and gather yourself? Do you need opportunities that I can somehow help with? Can I make you meals so that you don't have to worry about that and you can take more time to ponder the realities of the Lord? We have to begin to seek ways to carry the burden. That's the vision. Not only to remind each other of the truth of Christ's work, but to actually follow his example, taking on one another's burdens and in that to point to the reality of Christ's work and assurance. To say, I'm not only going to remind you that Christ has taken your burden, I'm going to act it out for you. I'm going to lift it from you so that you can feel that in your life. I I thought about this as I was thinking through that point, uh, I've started reading through Andrew Peterson's Wingfeather Saga. If you're not familiar with it, Andrew Peterson's the guy that does Behold the Lamb that we always uh, sing in in December, uh, the concert we go through, and he's written a a series of children's books called the Wingfeather Saga, and I don't think this is going to be a spoiler, so if you haven't read through the first book yet, it's just a snapshot, so I promise I I don't think this is going to spoil anything, but there's a moment near the the end of that book where the Igabee family, the main family in the book, is running to escape the enemies of the land, the the fangs of Dang, as they're called. And to escape them and arm themselves for a fight, there's no other place that they can go except for a house hidden deep in the woods. A house that's rumored to be abandoned and haunted, and they're running there in the dead of night. And although they shouldn't have, the two youngest boys from the family had been to that house before and been scared senseless because they heard this ghostly, ghastly wail that scared them out of their wits. Now, Poto, the grandfather, knows that they've been there before, and so he says to the oldest boy, Janner, that he'll have to lead the family through the house because he knows the way. All Janner can think of is that ghoulish cry that he heard the last time. And so he's terrified. He's frozen, he can't move, and his grandfather, bringing up the rear, yells out and he says, ghosts aren't real, boy, it's just the wind. And Jenner has every reason to trust his grandfather. He's never lied to him. He's always had his best interests at heart. But as Peterson puts it, I love this line, he says, his imagination was strong and working hard. He just couldn't move past that sound. He was sure there was really something awful behind it. And finally, to help him out, Poto, his grandfather catches up to him and he takes his face in his hands and he says, it's just the wind boy. It's not real. Here, feel my hands on your face. This is real. I'm real and it's okay. 
And Jenner finally comes to his senses, and as he races off, he leads his family into preparation for this fight, no longer afraid of what was now so obviously to him the wind. Now listen, family, Satan is strong. And he is working hard against us. He's doing everything he can to convince us 